very much welcome to this podcast about iron deficiency and chronic kidney disease. This is uh, number two in a series of seven podcasts about iron deficiency. And uh, the first one was on cardiac disease, and now we have this one on uh, kidney disease. This series is funded by the EHA, and uh, I will be the host for them all. And my name is Gunnar Birgegaard, or Birgegaard. I'm a hematologist, uh, professor of hematology in Uppsala, Sweden, with a long-lasting interest in iron and erythropoiesis. So today, as we talk about chronic kidney disease, we are happy to be able to welcome Dr. Chris Winnerls, an expert in that field. And could you, Chris, just tell us a bit who you are and what you are doing? Hello. I was until recently a consultant nephrologist in the Oxford Teaching Hospitals, but I retired just before COVID. Um, I, I've had an interest in iron and anemia in renal failure since I was a trainee. I worked on a very big hemodialysis unit where iron was studied uh, by Professor Ramon Gokul with Professor Martin Pippard and Professor Sir David Weatherall, looking at iron balance in uh, renal patients. And then in 1985, I, I joined a team led by Dr. Mary Coates, doing one of the first pilot studies of recombinant human erythropoietin to treat the anemia uh, of uh, renal failure. So I, I learned a lot of hard lessons on that road about anemia in renal failure, and particularly the importance of iron deficiency. But I've now retired, but it's an interest, been an interest for a very long time, and I think I understand it a bit better now. Thank you. It's interesting that you have this background. You were actually one of the first who treated patients with erythropoietin. Uh, I come from the other side, from the hematology side, and I had an uh, interest in erythropoietin and erythropoiesis already at that time. And we hematologists saw with awe and with uh, great admiration how the kidney patients were the first, of course, who were to benefit from uh, EPO treatment. But sort of uh, going on from that point, up till then, one didn't hear much about iron deficiency in chronic renal disease. But uh, as EPO treatment started, uh, there was suddenly a great interest and many patients who were diagnosed with iron deficiency. Can you remember how that happened? I do. And I, I think there are two reasons uh, for that. Most of the iron deficiency problem was concentrated in the minds of the hemodialysis physicians, because to begin with, they didn't treat CKD patients not on dialysis with EPO. That came a bit later. And we didn't really predict this. But if you have a patient who has a hemoglobin of, what we now say, 50 grams per liter, and you treat them with erythropoietin, you effectively treble the size of their red cell mass. Now, you need a lot of iron for that. And if they don't have the stores, they cannot actually mobilize or indeed absorb enough iron to do that if you treat them with a high dose of erythropoietin. So what we found was that patients were responding nicely to begin with, and then they were becoming iron deficient because they weren't importing enough iron quickly enough. So that was the first uh, surprise. We had been taught 
that iron absorption in these patients was normally controlled and that they would be able to absorb sufficient iron, oral iron. But as we all know, in dialysis patients who are anorexic and very often are taking uh, antacids, their iron absorption was not sufficient. So we had to resort to intravenous iron. And then we got them stable and we made another mistake. Of course, if you have a hemoglobin of 12 grams per deciliter or 120 grams per liter in the new units, when you lose blood, you're losing more iron than if you bleed when you've got a hemoglobin of 60 grams per liter. And so the maintenance requirements for dialysis patients went up because for every drop of blood they lost, they dropped proportionately more iron. So our whole idea about iron balance changed when erythropoietin arrived. Because before that, of course, there were no treatments, decent treatments for uh, renal anemia. Iron was maximized, but of course, many of the patients, particularly those who were anephric and produced very little, uh, little erythropoietin, just a little from the liver, uh, were transfusion dependent. And many of them, of course, developed transfusion siderosis. So it was, um, it was a, a very interesting uh, time. Yeah. And um, actually, the increase in hemoglobin uh, causing um, basically an emptying of the stores that the patients had was sort of uh, to be expected and inevitable. That happens every time you, you treat anemia and that you need more iron. The other things became more obvious then also when, when you and other people started studying the iron metabolism in these patients. Now, some of them then, this I would say is a true iron deficiency. But then some people started calling this functional iron deficiency. And to me, that was an error. We'll talk more about functional iron deficiency later because some patients then have true iron deficiency, just empty stores, but there are many more that need iron. And so many, many CKD patients have functional iron deficiency. And how many would you say have the functional iron deficiency also in CKD? I think that's a quite a controversial subject. There isn't really any reason why a CKD patient with CKD G3B or, or 4 or indeed 5 should get iron deficiency as a consequence of the renal failure per se. Renal failure should not affect iron metabolism and traffic. But a patient with renal failure seldom has isolated renal failure. They have a lot of comorbidities. As you know, the incidence of renal failure is much higher in the elderly population, many of them with comorbidities and taking various drugs. Uh, and so the incidence of iron deficiency in these patients is probably about 20 or 30%. So you actually have to treat them with iron before you even contemplate treating them with erythropoietin. And since the normal human can really only import a very small amount of iron through the duodenum, we bypass that now by treating them with intravenous iron to try to respond to this functional iron deficiency, which to me is an inadequate traffic of iron in these patients uh, to get it to the right place. And of course, very often it is complicated. Uh, it's not, if you like, a lack of substrate iron, uh, it is very often a lack of trafficking that substrate iron, usually because they have 
inflammation which might be actually covert. In other words, you can't actually uh, identify it. So they're a very complicated group of patients. Yes, and we talked about functional iron deficiency also in our first podcast in the cardiac patients, and here we are again. And as you say, it's a, a problem with the transport of iron. And that is why we actually have a very good indicator of functional iron deficiency in the very simple lab test, transfer and saturation. Because all iron that goes to the bone marrow for production of red cells must pass through plasma. And if you then measure transfer and saturation, you have uh, a measurement of the biologically available iron that is not doctor, that is not uh, restricted in the macrophages. So in the beginning, as you said, it was the patients on, on hemodialysis who got intravenous iron uh, along with erythropoietin. And now you say that uh, uh, this has widened, the indications have widened to other patients than the hemodialysis patients. Indeed. Most nephrologists, if they have a patient with chronic kidney disease who uh, has a hemoglobin, shall we say, below 10 grams per liter, who they're contemplating treating with, um, with erythropoietin, would first do a check of their iron status. And of course, their iron status may superficially appear as if they are iron replete. So they might have a normal ferritin, they might have a transferrin saturation of say 15 to 20%. But if you're going to raise their hemoglobin to 12 grams per liter, they'll rapidly become iron deficient. So there is a tendency to deal with the iron status before you give them erythropoietin. And sometimes to our surprise, uh, they actually, they improve their hemoglobins before you've even given them erythropoietin. So in a sense that there are two components to this anemia, there is the functional iron deficiency, and then there is the erythropoietin deficiency. So it, it's almost axiomatic that you don't use an expensive drug like erythropoietin until you've made sure that the substrate, the iron, um, is, is available so that the protocols really have changed. Now, the way that CKD patients are different is, of course, they are unlikely to need maintenance iron because once you've reestablished the red cell mass at the level, you don't have the blood losses of hemodialysis with needles and post-dialysis bleeding uh, and the heparinization and what have you. I mean, if the patients are bad at absorbing iron or they've got some other reason for losing it, then you, you have to top them up. But generally, they ought to be able to maintain their iron status once they've been made replete and they've been treated with their erythropoietin, unless, as I say, they have an alternative source of loss. So we don't book them in for regular iron. What we do is see them, check them, check their ferritins, check their uh, their transferrin saturations, check their hemoglobins and their erythropoietin doses. And if we find the EPO doses are going up and the ferritins are falling, we would top them up with iron. There is a problem with this, which I've encountered quite frequently, is that people don't think about why that ferritin is falling in the CKD patients. They say, oh, well, they're just becoming a little bit of iron deficient time for some more iron. And then they get a bit of a surprise because they give the patient an iron infusion and the ferritin starts dropping very quickly. And I call it the iron tolerance test or the ferritin tolerance test because the ferritin is going down far too fast. And what they do, you discover they're actually bleeding and people have got careless about looking for blood loss in these patients. And I'm afraid many a time there's been a red face because of an undiagnosed carcinoma of the colon 
or a telangiectasia of the, of the colon, or indeed upper GI blood loss has been missed because it's just been the iron deficiency has just in a sense been dismissed and, and masked by just repetitive iron infusions. Mm. A, a well CKD patient on erythropoietin should technically not need maintenance iron. But those who are on, on hemodialysis do. Indeed. Right? Yeah. So you talked about recommendations. There are several recommendations, both the European and American, etc. And they are not always the same. And that I understand uh, must be a problem for nephrologists. So what, what do the pertinent European uh, recommendations say about the iron treatment in, in CKD? Well, uh, talking about hemodialysis then, yeah. that's probably the easiest, yes. Well, I'll be an impertinent um, European nephrologist and say what, what I think we've learned in the UK and indeed in my own unit. And we believe that the right thing to do is to keep the patient iron replete by proactive iron dosing in hemodialysis patients. And the question has been the dose. And you know about uh, the pivotal study. Uh, excuse me. I think first you have to, to explain what you mean by proactive versus a reactive treatment. So that means that the patient is written up for a dose of iron once a week on dialysis. So the UK nephrologists favor a proactive policy, by which I mean regular dosing of the patients. So we don't uh, follow their monthly ferritin and say, oh dear, they're becoming iron deficient, let's give them some iron. Because I think that leads to a, uh, an up and down situation, which is unhealthy. What we say is, how much iron do we think a hemodialysis patient really needs for maintenance? And it's probably about 400 milligrams a month. Now, some patients it might be less and some patients it might be more. But if you did that, you could give 100 milligrams of intravenous iron weekly. And once you're in that particular routine, you just have to check that that's enough. And you would see that by the monthly drop in ferritin. Or if it was too much, you would see the ferritin creeping up to a level that is more than 500 micrograms per liter, where we would say we're now we're overdosing. So some patients might need 50. What we do not believe in doing is giving them a big shot of iron and then watching them becoming iron deficient. In other words, watching the sats falling, the ferritin falling, because that, you're, as we say in English, you're chasing your tail then. Why not just give them sufficient to keep them stable? So that is the the, um, I would say that's the British way. And if, I, if I give you an example, in the United Kingdom, we have a, um, a registry. We studied 22,000 hemodialysis patients, median hemoglobin, 111 grams per liter, median ferritin, 410 micrograms per liter, median dose of erythropoietin, 7,750 international units a week. And in the pivotal study in the group that had the react had the proactive the median hemoglobin was just the same 111 grams per liter the ferritin was higher 625 micrograms per liter and the erythropoietin dose 8000 so i think we've hit the sweet spot where if you give about 400 milligrams uh, a month you are very unlikely to, for that patient to become iron deficient and if they are you should be looking for why and if they're becoming iron overloaded, in other words, the ferritin is drifting up to 500, 600, then you can cut back. Because of course, the iron losses of these patients are going to vary and the amount of absorption. 
Yeah. That's why I, I'm fairly dogmatic. I really favor a proactive uh, dosage. Well, actually, that fits very well with our thinking in most diseases. We don't want to wait for symptoms. We don't want to wait for things to happen. We want to, to see to it that they, they don't happen. So that's, that's uh, certainly a model that is also used in, in Sweden among nephrologists. Now, talking about the dose, um, there has been a, a discussion about how high the ferritin should be allowed to, to go. Uh, there are the, the risks with a very high uh, serum ferritin showing that there is a, a, a lot of iron in the system. And there are various risks connected to that traditionally, even if um, there is really very little literature to, to support uh, some of the risks that are quoted. The recommendations in Europe, what limit do they say that you should keep below in serum ferritin in these patients? 800 micrograms per liter. Yeah. And do you agree with that? I completely agree with that. And I think that is, is the top limit. And I base my advice on some rather neat work on ferritins in diseases other than renal, in which MRIs of the liver have been done, calculating the, the liver iron load uh, and relating that to the ferritin. And once you get to a ferritin of, eight, of 800, it's very likely that you have excess liver iron. So the UK attitude is not over 800. And if it's over 500, we then suspend the iron dosage until it comes down to about 500. You've seen this is successfully done with a median ferritin in the UK of about 450 and a, and a modest dose of erythropoietin and a modest dose of iron. So I, I do agree with that. Now, you, you raise a very important point. What actually are the dangers of what I would call aggressive iron treatment? And I don't think it's any secret in the United States, they run the ferritins much higher than that, sometimes into the, into the thousands and give very high doses of iron. I don't know what the dose response curve is in somebody uh, who's relatively resistant to erythropoietin, uh, giving them more and more iron. I don't believe that the dose response curve is justifiable, so to speak, because I don't think you get that much of an increase in him. They say you get a small increase. So we don't, we absolutely don't agree with that particular way of dosing uh, patients. Now, the, 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 the problem about what are the dangers is there's the danger of the patient having a high iron, but it also, it's the duration of that exposure. So in the bad old days when renal transplantation wasn't particularly successful, we had a lot of young patients who were chronically iron overloaded for a long time. Now we don't have that any longer because transplantation is more successful and we have, and we have, we have erythropoietin. And of course, older patients, sadly, have a median survival of only about five years on dialysis. So maybe being iron overloaded doesn't make a difference, but we must be mindful that, that younger untransplantable patients should not be, we should, we should not take the risk of giving them essentially a sort of siderotic condition which may affect various other organs including the heart. Yeah and you you were talking mostly about the liver iron and mm -hmm. the risks there. Now oncologists are sometimes a bit uh, more cautious because they have a feeling that an overload of iron also gives a risk for cancer. Now there is very little um, data to support that it's mostly data with heavily, heavily overloaded animals who, who have gotten uh, tumors in, in places where you have injected very great amounts of iron. 
but uh, there has been this this uh, uh, fear of giving patients uh, ions so that the ferritin raises up to eight nine hundred nine hundred, and hematologists and oncologists are usually a bit more cautious and keep the ferritin uh, level a bit lower. Personally, I I am much for what you are saying. I think uh, that uh, serum ferritin or top um, limit 800 is quite reasonable. So now we come to a second question. We've been talking about ferritin. Is that the only thing we need for the monitoring of uh, these patients? Uh, no, it's an imperfect measure, as you know. It is an acute phase reactant, and therefore the ferritin is not necessarily proportionate to the, uh, the iron status of the patient. You can have a high ferritin with, with inadequate iron if a patient's got certain types of inflammatory diseases. I suppose it's the best we've got for iron overload, but if you're that worried about iron overload, then you're going to have to do expensive investigations like MRIs of the liver and what have you. But that's not a problem that most nephrologists face up to, actually. I, we've, I, I don't believe I can recall ever doing an MRI on somebody because I thought they were iron overloaded. I mean, I knew that the, that the, the inherited patients transfusion siderosis had it, but it was amazing that when erythropoietin came down, how they, they, that we got rid of the iron extremely quickly. We didn't give them any intravenous iron and they, they used it up. So uh, I think to actually to monitor these patients, I think the saturation is useful, but I always tell the, the, the trainees that the transfer and saturation is a bit like the cash in your, in your purse. And it depends whether you've just gone and spent a bit of money and so it does fluctuate quite a lot. But if it's chronically below 20%, you're probably not carrying enough money around on you to pay for what you need to do, which is to drive erythropoiesis. Um, the ferritin is not a very good idea of what you've got in your savings account if you've got inflammation. The really important thing is, is that iron feeding the erythron to produce properly hemoglobinized uh, red cells? And I'm sorry that it's become... It's, it's, it's quite difficult to get the, the tests of the hyperchromic red cells and the low the reticulocytes with a low uh, hemoglobin concentration because that tells you actually what's going on in the bone marrow. What sort of cells is it producing today? And if it's producing hyperchromic red cells today or lower hemoglobin reticulocytes, you know that the bone marrow is hungry for iron and not being fed enough. But if you looked at the Coulter counter, the mean cell volume, which will include all the previously healthy red cells, will be normal, as will the mean corpuscular hemoglobin. So actually, what you want to do is to see what the today's product is. And, and I must say, I, I favor that as a way of, of checking whether the patient does, in fact, have enough substrate being delivered to the point of manufacture of the red cells. Yeah. And as you say, unfortunately, it's not available everywhere. It's a strange thing. I think we hematologists are a bit to blame because we've been asking for machines that can tell us a lot about the white blood cells, but we haven't really stressed that we really want to these things, the hyperchromic red cells and the CHR. Now, uh, going to uh, the treatment goals, what would you say is the treatment goal in terms of, of uh, hemoglobin? And do, do you uh, 
do that, do you monitor that and steer that by numbers or what, what do, you, do you use well, for evaluation? This is a very messy subject, as you know, uh, because if you try to correlate physiology and quality of life, it's quite difficult to show differences uh, above 10 grams per deciliter. So we like to keep the patients between 10 and 12, and obviously definitely keeping them um, that they don't have to have blood transfusion. But I think to try and prove that 13 is better than 11 has, ne has never been possible. There's no, in my view, the patients will not suffer if their hemoglobins are more than 10. I confess that if they're young and athletic, we tend to drift it up nearer to the 12, but I think those are perfectly reasonable targets. Okay. There are reasons for not going above um, 120 grams per liter that have been very much used in hematology and oncology because you increase then the risk for thrombosis. Do you see such an increased risk for thrombosis also in your patients? That's a great question. The answer is there is no proof of that. There is some possible effect on vascular access but if you think about in hemodialysis patients who happen to have a normal hemoglobin because they have polycystic kidney disease, we do not venesect them. And actually, the data on hemoglobin actually shows that having a high hemoglobin on hemodialysis is not an adverse factor, but it probably reflects the, the, the better health of those particular patients. But there's a real fear of, if you like, a sort of normal cythemic polycythemia in dialysis patients that, you know, if they have a hemoglobin of 14, they must have very poor circulation. Mm. And I find that a conundrum, which I've never managed to resolve. I certainly never venesected my patients with normal hemoglobins, but I no. was nervous about driving it above 12. So you basically look very much for other symptoms. How is the patient doing? Indeed. Yeah. Now, we all long for new drugs. And there is uh, one area in this uh, uh, problem that could help us a lot. And that is a drug that could reduce hepcidin. As we've uh, mentioned a bit before, it's quite common with functional iron deficiency and transport problems. And there, uh, hepcidin is the culprit. We need to try to reduce hepcidin in order to restore the transport of iron. And there are new drugs coming. And there are these hypoxia-inducible factor proline hydroxylase inhibitors. And the question is, have they been tried in CKD patients and uh, are there results? Okay, very quick answer. They work to increase the hemoglobin. They work by increasing erythropoietin. It was claimed that proline hydroxylase inhibitors have, an, have a direct effect on hepcidin. I'm afraid to say that is not correct. They have no direct effect on hepcidin. They have their effect on hepcidin only through the effect of erythroferone produced by the responding bone marrow reducing uh, hepcidin. But you will get exactly the same effect if you treated that bone marrow with conventional erythropoietin. So I do not believe there's a proof that PHIs improve iron traffic. Now, I know that PHIs improve the, the concentration or the, the expression, should I say, of, of iron transport proteins in the duodenum and in the transferrin receptor protein, but I have not seen convincing evidence that they have a beneficial effect on iron traffic. 
Okay, so there is uh, more research needed and uh, we probably need other drugs than those that have been developed so far. Now, finally, one question that I have wondered about is, in what situation does a nephrologist need the help of a hematologist? When we're stuck, and we're stuck <laughs> when we've used all our tricks and they're not working, and then you come in and help us with things like red cell survivals, diagnosis of hemolysis, or other diseases like lymphoma or myeloma by doing a bone marrow. Yeah, okay. We will keep trying to help you uh, whenever you want to call us. So thank you very much, Chris, for uh, today's podcast and your expert input into that. I don't think it is very easy to summarize everything we've been talking about. But it's very nice to hear that iron is such an important issue for nephrologists, because we have also from the outside seen how much better the CKD patients fare nowadays with EPO and intravenous iron. So uh, we thank you very much for today. And I would like to remind the listeners that this is number two in a series of seven. So please come back and join us for the next one, which is planned to be on iron deficiency in women. So thank you for today, for your attention, and welcome back. Mm -hmm.